Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from a pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Pastor Bullet, joined by Diamond David Moser, who has brought a wholly inappropriate level of glamour, glitter, and pizzazz to his role as academic director of the CET program here in Beijing. How are you, David? Great. Where did you get that fabulous Liberace outfit that you were wearing? Yes, and matter of fact, yes, uh, you're probably wondering about that. Yeah. I, <laughs> I was just in uh, Zhejiang for two days. Uh, I thought Beijing was wild. Zhejiang, right. they, wow, they party hardy. Well, you look great. I think, I mean, the, the wig, the whole thing, the get up is, <laughs> is terrific. Um, I, I, I think you should go with it. It's, it's okay. a good look for you. Great. Uh, we are, unfortunately, this week not boy- joined by Jeremy Goldcorn, the man behind Danway.com, um, because of technical issues. He's missing out on all of all on all the fun here of the RMB devaluation, potentially toxic hydrogen cyanide clouds. So it's it's actually it's Wednesday, August eighteenth, as we record, just shy of exactly a week after the tragic explosions in a chemical warehouse in the port of Tianjin, Binghai. Uh, around eleven thirty p.m., a fire at a facility storing ammonium mm-hmm. nitrate and also calcium carbide took a catastrophic turn and resulted in a first huge explosion shortly after midnight that uh, shortly before midnight actually shook buildings and broke windows several kilometers away it was felt as much as a hundred kilometers away and left a gigantic crater in the earth with uh, surrounding blocks of buildings flattened at least I think the death toll is 115 or more I don't know 114 114 yeah. right. uh, including uh, three dozen firefighters with close to a hundred people still missing many of them firefighters uh, the death toll is quite likely to rise. There's some people are claiming that the actual number of dead has been suppressed, not surprisingly. Uh, these chemicals are not obscure. Their dangers are pretty well understood. Ammonium nitrate you know, nitrate is a common fertilizer that many people are aware of. It's stuff that you mix with fuel oil, a la Timothy McVeigh, um, to a very deadly effect. Calcium carbide, with mixed, when mixed with water, creates the very highly combustible acetylene gas. As anyone who's ever tried to figure out how a carbide lamp of the sort that's used by miners works, I had one as a kid. Uh, and there was also, as it turns out, a lot of sodium cyanide in the facility, and I think everyone is familiar with that, as well as potassium nitrate. Uh, in the wake of the explosions, there are a lot of unanswered questions over actual death tolls about who was actually counted among the dead, about the dangers still that may be posed to people in the area, about what actually caused the initial fire, about what caused the actual explosions, about jurisdictional confusion you know, that may have contributed to the mishandling of, 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 the, uh, of the horrible accident, about why these chemicals were stored in such close proximity to one another in quantity against existing regulation, and about why there were maybe you know, so many people living in such close proximity to such dangerous explosives, um, and of course about the extraordinary valiant effort that they have put into censoring coverage of the <laughs> event. Um, so we're very fortunate to have with us today two reporters who've been providing coverage from the scene. First, we welcome back to Seneca Julie McKinnon, who's a correspondent with the, uh, the Bureau Chief, no doubt, long of the LA Times. Great to have you back, Julie. Thanks, Kaiser. Uh, and I, as I promised you already, uh, the next time you're on, it will not be to talk about scenes of devastation. <laughs> Fun. Fun. Happy. Yeah. You name it. We are uh, also joined for the first time by Fergus Ryan, who's been covering uh, the Tianjin explosions for The Guardian. Uh, both of you have been filing some really gripping, heartbreaking, and really infuriating stuff. So Fergus, why don't you start us off, um, can you talk a bit about some of the more memorable scenes that you've been witness to, and explain to us how you came about this cough that you now <laughs> brought into the studio with you? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure uh, exactly whether the 
cough is uh, psychosomatic or whether it's actually from the chemicals um, near the blast site. But um, uh, the reason why it could possibly be that is because um, I spent most of the Thursday, the day after the blast, making my way from the um, Turda Tianjin Hospital through the resi residential areas um, that you were just talking about, um, where all the windows had been smashed, even though they were three kilometers from the blast site, and then making my way uh, to the blast site itself. And <coughs> on, foot, on foot the whole time. On foot the whole time. Um, and so I made it uh, to the western perimeter um, of the blast site, um, and I could see uh, huge chunks of metal that had been stripped from shipping containers and hurtled uh, completely over the highway on the western perimeter there and had landed jutting out of the ground. Um, I saw what seemed to be uh, an oil barrel that had um, just been flung um, over the, the highway like a, like a missile and had, um, and had landed on the other side there um, with a weird white substance all over it and it had left a, a trail of this weird white um, stuff. Um, and then I made my way <coughs> closer to the site underneath the uh, highway on the western side and just saw scores of trucks and cars, um, m many of them completely blackened, all of the windows smashed, um, and uh, just, uh, you know, a com complete and utter destruction. And then looking across to the blast site, um, I could see huge um, plumes of um, what was at first white smoke coming coming out of the, the massive crater there. Mm -hmm. um, but then at one stage, just suddenly turning into this mustard-coloured um, smoke. And um, there was, you know, Helicopters overhead and, and very acrid smell coming out of the out of the blast site. Were you? How many days after? Yeah, this, 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 is, this is Thursday. This is Thursday, right? Right. Yeah. This is the day directly after. Afterwards. So this is just you know 12, 12 hours maybe fourteen mm -hmm. hours. Yeah. The afternoon of. And, and and Julie, what about you? When did you you get you got down there a little bit later, right? I also got there Thursday morning oh, and. Oh, in the morning. Wow. Yeah. Um, drove from Beijing and um, you know as a reporter you just kind of have the instinct uh, I'm going to go as close as I can um, so I was driving and uh, I, I had my little map and I was navigating I thought oh okay maybe I'll turn down the street and get blocked and I saw some police cars but nobody stopped me and I kept going and I thought maybe I'll get blocked at the next intersection and nobody stopped me and I just kept going and going and going till I was right up on it um, which was quite shocking and really I mean even it's been a week and I am still sort of agog at the scope of the disaster I thought maybe for our Beijing readers or listeners who have never been to Tianjin to put it in some perspective if the blast happened at Gongti which is where we are right which now. is basically where we are right now um, that means that buildings as far as Guomao were like seriously messed up oh wow so you guys i i i imagine took some precautions i mean there, were, there was who knows what in the air at that time 
Um, did you figure that your living in Beijing had steeled you for anything? <laughs> well, I mean, it's funny that you say that because for most of the day, certainly when I was near the hospital and making my way through those residential areas, I was sort of, you know, thinking, oh, this is not too bad. It's not, it's, you know, it's n definitely not as bad as one of the worst days in, in Beijing. Um, but uh, when I was getting very close to the blast site, um, you could see that uh, residents were um, more careful about um, taking precautions mm. and wearing face masks. And when I had got r right up very close, there was um, the only other person I bumped into was a, a Caixin photographer um, who was, was also wearing a face mask. And he told me that he had um, already attempted to enter uh, directly into the blast site um, but had been stopped by the police and they had deleted his uh, photographs, but mm -hmm. he was trying again. Did you run into any difficulty, either of you, with, with, um, with police on the scene? Um, so after I got to this elevated freeway that Fergus is speaking of, I actually um, decided to drive up on the elevated freeway, and um, it's a divided freeway, so I was going south, and um, the north bound side is what's close to it, so closest to this site. So uh, I was driving right up as close you could get on the freeway. And on the northbound side, there was a trucker in his big rig that was completely wrecked by the thing. And he had some dried blood on his head, but he was just sitting in his cab. I think he didn't really know what to do. Door was kind of hanging off and the windshield was blown in. And there were a couple cops up there with them. And at one point, the cops said to me, um, you know, who are you? What are you doing here? And I showed him my press badge, but the elevated highway is divided, so there's about a you know maybe a two meter gap between each side. So there was no really way the cops anything. could get over to me. <laughs> they just kind of looked at my badge and said, "Okay." Um, the, the cops said to me, "You know, it's, it's pretty dangerous up here. You should be wearing a mask." And I, and I said, "Well, you're not wearing a mask. <laughs> What's going on here?" You know. So I I, I think initially people were kind of oblivious, but um, by the weekend. You know, I stopped on a street corner and there was a company giving out not the kind of pollution masks that we wear in Beijing, but a serious kind of plastic mask that is designed to protect you from chemicals. Because the mask we use in Beijing to protect ourselves from particulates will not protect you from mm -hmm. chemicals. Right. How, how much was known at that time, or especially right after the blast, but the, the next day, about the nature of those chemicals? And apparently most of the people in the neighborhood had no idea that there was even a chemical storage facility there, right? So how that truck driver was just in the dark, and did the police know what they were dealing with? Do you know? Uh, certainly people I spoke to and um, interviews that I've read in Chinese media um, s suggest that a lot of the residents um, who lived nearby, they didn't even know that there were chemicals um, yeah. at that facility and um, most people thought that it was a, a petrol station that had that had exploded mm. yeah there, mm. there was a, a famous YouTube video or whatever it was that floated around it was some foreigners taking a, a shot of it that seemed to be the closest existing that we know of I guess it was like two blocks away or something and they were saying yeah well, this must be a gas station this has to be a gas station and then, then they they ran away. So this so the next day this must have been like the Hiroshima bomb, people wandering around and didn't know what hit them. 
Well, um, when I was up very close, um, I, you know, I, I could see all the things that I described to you already, but it was only when I got back to Beijing and followed the coverage, um, you know, mainly from Chinese media, and um, I saw this, you know, what no doubt um, many people have seen now, these um, aerial um, shots often taken by drones of right. the crater. Um, and the first time I saw how massive that crater was, uh, and then I thought, I was standing right there, right <laughs> next to it. I had no idea. I had no idea that just how vast that crater was. Yeah. Um, so I, I, one thing that I think a lot there's been a lot of confusion about is sort of the, the geography of Tianjin itself. I mean, you know, we hear that Tianjin. Some people said Tanggu. We hear this uh, acronym T E D A. Teda or Teda, Binhai. Uh, can you explain the relationship between and among these different things? I mean, Tianjin Shi, Tianjin Municipality, is one of four municipal level cities along with Beijing, Shanghai, and Chongqing. Uh, it's it's an enormous place. It's quite big. It's like the size of the state of Delaware, right? I mean, it's. Uh, but where is I mean the Tianjin city that we we all are familiar with? You know we go ride the high high speed rail uh, relative to the Binhai new area where the explosion happened. Well, I I went down um, by train, mm -hmm. um, and when I arrived at Tianjin um, Station, um, I sort of expected to just jump in a cab and be at the blast site, um, you know, within 10, 20 minutes. But it's an hour away. But it's an hour away. Right. It's an hour away. Um, and um, I think probably the best explanation of all of this is um, has uh, been written by Matthew S uh, Stinson, yes. who's, who lives in Tianjin. He's written a really great post on Medium that um, goes into the, into the details of, you know, what is Binhai, what is Tianjin. Right, right. Um, I was hoping you would be able to kind of summarize it. <laughs> Julie, you want to jump I, in? I think, um, so I drove down on the freeway, and after about 60 kilometers from Beijing, you start seeing signs for, like, you know, Tianjin City Center, take this exit. And then you drive another 60 kilometers, and you get to Binhai. And I think the thing that's striking about Binhai is that it's basically an area that has, was raised up from the ground and not that long ago. It's a newly developed area um, with lots of light industrial, um, high rises, and then beyond it is the sea and the port. And sort of south of there is this sort of new Manhattan area that they've also been constructing. Um, but you know, you, you kind of in an old city, you might expect things get jumbled up and sometimes a apartment building can get built next to an industrial site and that's just sort of how cities evolve but what's striking about this place is this was nothing like right. 10 years ago it was you know countryside or villages or something that that was basically bulldozed to the ground and built anew so in theory this kind of thing shouldn't happen because you have the chance to segregate Industrial mm. from residential. Right. Yeah, you have a new SimCity map to work right. with, right? <laughs> you should zone it right. Um, so the, the villain in all of this seems to be this company, Ray High Logistics, the firm that actually operated the warehouse. Um, what do we know about that company? What can you tell us about that company, about its ownership? We hear all sorts of rumors about uh, who the actual owners are and about what has happened to the owners themselves. 
Well, it was only until uh, yesterday, I believe, so um, nearly seven days um, after the event that uh, we first learnt from the Chinese media that 10 e executives at that company had actually already been detained mm -hmm. um, the Thursday um, after the, ex the, um, the incident happened. So the, the very next day they were interned. Um, and with there is more details today about uh, this shady, very murky um, uh, company structure that um, has been set up to to deceive um, people about you know who who is actually controlling it. But clearly, there's been links made to high-level Communist Party officials, um, the sons and daughters of people who are quite well connected in the communist leadership. But what was the deal? There's this uh, a guy whose name popped up. Uh, was it uh, Yang Dongliang, mm -hmm. who was the former Tianjin vice mayor or something? Uh, a a former vice mayor. Right, and then now a sort of head of a work safety. He, my impression of reading, I was reading the Global Times today, was that it seemed like he was the attempt was to scapegoat him. Is there anything, is there anything to that? Well, when you when you look at the fact that he was vice mayor of Tianjin for I believe fifteen years, mm -hmm. um, and that he is now in charge of the work safety uh, watchdog, and he's um, also and corruption he's, charges, right? And he's he's also um, you know he used to work at Sinook, um, oh, so okay. he's okay. so he's you know you could assume that he's in this sort of Zhou Yong. Kung petroleum, petroleum faction chemicals. So um, the he's a good scapegoat, <laughs> right? So yeah, so that's that's like a, it was a double whammy with the Tianjin and the work safety thing, yeah. and then when you find out that he was um, with Sinook, then it's like you know this guy was he obviously knew on Wednesday night that he was going to have a really bad weekend. <laughs> yeah, um, and but uh, today uh, we also found out that his son. Um, has been put um, has been arrested as well um, and authorities have said you know oh, we were investigating these guys a year ago um, which is convenient mm -hmm. to say the least so um, I understand that there were residential compounds that were quite close and that were a total of something like 5,000 people living within the supposed one kilometer safe zone of this actual storage facility how is that? I mean, who who is to blame for this? Now, how is that possible? And uh, I mean, this isn't just. I mean, not that it's just, but it's not as as I initially had suspected. Maybe just dorms for workers, for migrant workers. But the, these are actually some high end residential areas, right? Yes, um, Vanky, the developer of one of these properties, uh, quite close to the Blasse where, you know, 30-story building with windows blown out from top to bottom and, you know, doors crumpled, has come out and said, uh, well, we built our high-rise in 2010. Uh, this was before this company was established. And as far as we know, uh, we didn't know anything like this was around here. We built this thing here and thought it was safe. Hmm. So uh, these guys really do seem to have done, I mean, uh, yeah, it's 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 looking pretty grim for them. Um, what else do we know about? Um, the, the, there were what something like six thousand people displaced now from this. Is, is that right? What's what's happened with them? I mean, are they all just putting themselves up in hotels? I know I can't remember whose story it was that had 
uh, couples that just check themselves into hotels rather than wait for for actual assistance are, are there um, centers being set up for the displaced people or what's what's being done so the the people who we, we were just um, talking about who um, whose residency was just 600 meters away from the blast site mm -hmm. um, a lot of those uh, families have been protesting in the in the past few days. Mm -hmm. um, today there was um, a the tenth uh, press conference, um, uh, and the Tianjin mayor finally showed his face at that. And these families were outside that press conference again. They have been outside um, many of these press conferences, and they're they're asking for um, compensation. Um, then, but further out uh, from uh, to to the uh, residences that are one two kilometers away, um, many of these buildings, um, I'm sure Julie saw as well. Well, the all of the windows were completely smashed, and um, that's how quite a lot of people were injured. And the vast majority of those people are staying in these sort of makeshift shelters. Uh, in nearby um, primary schools and, and middle schools. Um, other people um, have gone into hotels that apparently some of them have been provided with free hotels. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think what you have here is sort of, you have two classes of victims. You have white-collar well-to-dos who own their own apartments and are angry and want compensation and um, know how to exert pressure on the government with these protests. And then you have another class of people who are primarily migrant workers, and those are the one, people who don't have a lot of options. They're the ones staying in the elementary schools. I mean, we talked to one family, a migrant worker family, who was living with four other families crammed into a three-bedroom apartment and another family that had been actually living in a converted shipping container working on a construction site there. Mm. Um, so you have sort of haves and have-nots, which create two different sort of classes of problems for the government. Uh, you mentioned, Fergus, there have been 10 press conferences, and the press conferences themselves have been the focus of a lot of news. Tell, tell me what's, what's happened during the press conferences. Uh, Julie, you want to start us off? I mean, I think the overall impression that's been left is that the officials who have been thrust before the media are ill-prepared to answer questions uh, and give specifics about what's been going on there. Um, I have to give some kudos to the press corps that's been out in Tianjin. We've seen some very aggressive questioning to the point where the leaders are getting the press conference officials getting very frustrated and uh, I think that's a good sign. It, it mm -hmm. actually gave me some hope um, to see how aggressive some of the reporters were. Yeah, apparently at the press conference today, local uh, reporters were asking, you know, who's going who's gonna to resign over this? Um, so, you know, wh whether those questions, uh, I mean, those questions were stonewalled um, and they m will probably not end up in the media. Um, having said that, uh, when I was back in Beijing and, and relying on um, Chinese media reports, um, uh, you know, jumping into Weibo, you could find um, uh, really great reporting that was um, happening. And 
you know I would you would translate it and write it up and put it into your piece and then and then later check that Weibo link and uh, to you know to go back to the original source and it was gone. Take screenshots, man. Yeah, I, I did. I did. <laughs> yeah, I, w I was just uh, I've been listening the last few days to the radio, uh, not so much uh, you know Weibo, but the, uh, and hearing lots and lots of t of radio shows, of talk shows, and uh, analysis. And I was just listening to one on the way here to the podcast. But I, I've noticed, and actually this is something interesting about Chinese media these days, I find it, it, it's, it happens over and over again, which is when there's an event like this, the talk is all very analytical in much detail, and they're talking about all the different aspects of it. Today they're talking about all these different chemicals and the different effects on the human body and this kind of stuff, and saying these are similar to the chemicals that the Nazis took to commit suicide after World War II or you know, after they lost and stuff like that. But what's interesting is, is there's an illusion of open discussion, but there's, there's a, they exclude issues of culpability, of, as you said, who's going to get fired over this, whether the government had any stake in this, whether this involves graft, whether it involves a, a systemic problem with storing waste materials or this, you know, chemicals. That, that just doesn't come up. So the, the, the talk show is formatted as it's a freewheeling discussion, and they had some experts on there talking about various things. That's my impression. I haven't listened to all of it, obviously, but it seems like this is a long-standing media technique of appearance of, of, you know, of openness about the topic. But they're really, it's what's evident is what's not there, what's sort of invisible to the discussion. But there's a lot of interest in a lot of call-in shows where people are asking questions and talking about it. Yeah, one one of the first things, c c c because I, I was very closely monitoring the Cena live blog coverage, um, which was excellent. Um, and one of the very first things I noticed on that was that uh, the Tianjin TV news were ready and rearing to go. They were prepared to broadcast live to Tianjin residents um, the very next day, but they had to wait for permission. I'm not sure that they got it. No, and these big disasters, often the local uh, media get, it's the biggest story of their life and they can't really do much about it. When right. I was, um, you guys probably remember the ferry disaster of earlier this summer, and I went down to Jianli and um, I was looking for a place to stay uh, the first night I got there because all the hotels were suddenly unavailable to foreigners. <laughs> um, and so I was at the media center and there was a guy there and he said, oh, I could help you. Um, you can stay with a friend of mine. And I said, oh, that's great. And I said, well, what do you do here? And he said, oh, I'm in charge of the television station. And I said, oh, I, I, you must be really busy. I, I, I don't want to take up your time. And he was like, no, I got nothing to do. Wow. 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 That says Amazing. it all. My God. Um, and, yeah, speaking of, of earlier disasters of which this may remind us, I don't think anyone watched what was happening, whether they're foreign or Chinese, uh, without thinking about the Wenzhou train wreck and yeah. uh, the handling of that. Uh, and, of course, you know, that was, th that breathed the kind of life into Weibo. Um, it was one of the, the first instances where, where Weibo became this very, very active platform on which all sorts of, of, of well, you know, rumor, but also, um, you know, very quite factual reporting and, and video and all this was, was being circulated. Uh, the the medium of the day, of course, uh, with Tianjin was Weixin, right? Uh, that was where everyone went to instantly. That's where I mean, m my my feed was just so filled with uh, 
people basically one-upping one another on, you know, this is a video that was taken even closer, this is a video that, I mean, and they were horrific, and you just couldn't, you know, you couldn't look away. Um, I, I, I read on, on a favorite blog of mine uh, called Chublic Opinion, uh, it's written by a guy named Matienji, I don't know if, if any of you guys saw this, uh, he wrote a terrific piece um, that I would highly recommend. Uh, and I'm just going to quote it at some length from this because I think it's just, it's it's really worth hearing. Uh, it, it, I think it'll surprise most readers to learn that the, the writer of this blog isn't even a native English speaker. I think um, there are many of us who could take lessons from him. He writes um, quite far down in this long piece. Four years ago, the train tragedy defined Sina Weibo as the number one social media outlet that had the potential to replace traditional market orientation media as China's agenda setter. The Tianjin blast seems to have catalyzed the reinvention of the traditional media. The perfect storm of media inquiry this time excites a veteran observer into saluting his former colleagues, quote, In the past few days, most of the first-hand media coverage with added value all came from the familiar block of Beijing News, Southern Metropolis Daily, Southern Weekly, Caixin, and iNewsweek. Despite the increasingly suffocating and difficult environment, you guys are still charging ahead. Uh, stay safe. It indeed looks like a renaissance for which those news organizations have been saving up. Almost overnight, they unveiled to the world the formidable arsenal they have accumulated. WeChat live broadcasting, 360-degree panoramic photography, and HTML5 aggregation of information. All of a sudden, drones uh, seemed to have become a standard piece of equipment in a journalist's backpack, and the images that they produced within hours of the inc incident stunned the world. Many of those news organizations probably have become substantially stronger after this battle. The viewership of their materials on digital channels exploded, which almost certainly translates into a larger follower base online. Right, so I mean that that's that was also my impression is that I was really I'm, I've been kind of amazed at how well the the traditional media has has handled, especially some of the the, the outlets that that Matienjia here singled out. Right. Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, I think also it's it's great to see sort of the broader audience getting hip, hipper and hipper to some of the tricks um, of trying to control public opinion. So you guys have probably all seen people um, saying, you know, they don't want to just light a candle and, you know, see a moving story about a puppy being rescued or something like that. They want answers. And I'm, I've read a lot of comments to this effect. And uh, I think that's really great. People are, are questioning what's going on here. Mm -hmm. Even um, citizen journalists, I saw a few citizen journalists down there one um, young man was out with his camera uh, taking shots of the devastation and, and uh, sharing it on, on WeChat. Another thing I saw in relation to WeChat was uh, the volunteer effort. And um, they were um, spontaneously organizing uh, through WeChat um, and receiving goods that have, were being delivered by courier from across the country sorting those goods and then delivering them to people who were in need. Well, folks, I mean, uh, I, I don't know if, David, do you have any more questions about this? I mean, I, I think uh, one, one thing I used to, I guess people are really concerned uh, about, and, you know, rumors were flying around. I saw this post that people were passing around that purported to be from the U.S. Embassy warning about, you know, staying out of rain and stuff. 
Uh, the embassy people that I had talked to denied that it w had been issued. Um, oh, really? Yeah. I saw that, and it did not look like an embassy. Right, release. it didn't. It wasn't. What was that? I don't know who writes these sorts of things. Yeah, it as was soon as I saw that, I said, this is not an official release. Right, but it was written by a native English speaker, yeah, somebody with the, who, was, who was close enough. And, I mean, it seemed like it had a, a ring of authenticity. Yeah, I mean, it's... Right. But, yeah, it's really bizarre that people put these things out. But in any case... Um, but there are people who are worried about this. I mean, one of the chemicals that was contained there was sodium cyanide, yeah. which can react and become hydrogen cyanide, airborne. Uh, w was was there reason to fear uh, fallout in from from from, from a very deadly chemicals in in the yeah. immediate aftermath? I, I think certainly just by the volume, but I think this is one of the big unanswered questions of this. Uh, event still. I mean, my gut feeling about this is probably could have been much worse if it hadn't happened in the middle of the night, if a bunch of people had yeah. been at work, if mm -hmm. a bunch of people yeah. had been out and about on the street, on the highway nearby. Uh, it seems to me that it could have been much more severe um, and that maybe we're very fortunate that it was only as bad as it is. And, and quickly, do we also know what actually the sequence of events on that evening were? I mean, there was some kind of industrial accident that caused a fire. And then what what happened next? I mean, what what, what have we managed to really piece together? There were a, a set of explosions, one smaller, one much larger. The larger, presumably, the actual explosion of acetylene gas because of firefighters using water on the uh, the calcium carbide. Is, is, is this... That seems to be a major, the popular explanation. Uh, yeah, the popular explanation. Um, and a lot of these, what they're referring to as contract firefighters, some of them, one in particular as young as 17, um, were took the, f the most of the brunt of the, the casualties initially. Um, and that has caused um, uh, some consternation when... Uh, Premier Li Keqiang finally went down four days after the event. Um, he gave an impromptu interview with Hong Kong Cable TV, and that was the point that he was stressing he's, a lot. He used the quality of, of, of... So, but we need a little bit of background. I don't think everyone followed this part of the story. Uh, what was... What, I mean, the contract firefighters hadn't been well, being what, treated... What, what, were, what were these young firefighters going in, not knowing that what they were putting out was a chemical fire? They had no idea what it was, right? That's what that's what I heard. Yeah, but they also they weren't given sort of the same accord. Uh, they weren't. Oh, you're talking uh, about after the, the yeah injuries. after after. Yeah, there's two issues. Two one issues is here, right? one is what kind of training did the firefighters receive? What kind of information did they have right. when they were dispatched to the scene? Did they know they were going to a chemical fire? Did they think they were going to a conventional fire? Right. Then the second question is, once these firefighters do lose their lives, how are they treated? How are their families treated? What kind of compensation are they eligible for? And I think sort of in a scoring some, um, you know, popularity points, Lee Kachang said everyone should be treated equally. Um, but I have a question about, you know, why it took four days for Lee Kachang to get down there. Um, I, I sort of thought that this um, administration was a little bit more media savvy, and I, I, I was sort of shocked it took that long. Fergus, do you have a theory as to why? Uh, no, I, I don't. I'm, it's a, it really is a head-scratcher. I mean, Tianjin I mean, is so close to Beijing, surely. But there was the Beidaihe conference going on. Is that possible? I've seen that raised as a possibility. Yeah, but I mean, I think it... 
I, maybe this is my American perspective, but, you know, when I see a, a headline on Xinhua saying all the senior leaders had time to go to the funeral of a, another senior Communist Party uh, leader on Sunday, and then Li Keqiang went well, down. Seems like a skewing of priorities. Yeah. There's also been a lot of articles I've seen in the press about economic repercussions of all of this in terms of the strain on the insurance industry. Uh, I mean, there, they say there was something like 8,000 cars totally demolished. Most of them actually new cars. Yeah, because right? uh, it was near a port. It's a port city, right? So these right. things are all stacked up. Yeah, I uh, think uh, Fitch came out yesterday and said they expected at least $1.5 billion in claims yeah. and that they were making the point that actually uh, in this area a lot of people did have insurances. A lot of businesses yeah. and a lot of individuals do have insurance, so yeah. there will be claims. And then on top of that, there are some government policies that people in this area will also be covered by, uh, which will lead to um, claims in that regard. So uh, this could have some financial effect on Chinese also, insurers. Also, uh, Tianjin is, uh, you know, the, most of the fish that we eat in Beijing comes from Tianjin. I think it's going to be a long time before anyone wants to eat fish from Tianjin, but, you know. Yeah, the I'm Gulf of Bohai <laughs> is not exactly my, my favorite. Anyway, well, uh, yeah. On that somber note, <laughs> let's um, let's let's make some recommendations, guys. What do you say? Um, let's start with ladies first, Julie. What do you have for us this week? Okay, in a, in an attempt to uh, counter the downbeat uh, tone oh, good, of oh, this, good. and uh, uh, I'm from Ohio originally, and uh, Ohio summers mean. Uh, an amusement park called Cedar Point. I don't know if any of our listeners are familiar with this, but it's one of the um, more awesome things about Northern Ohio, <laughs> <laughs> um, aside from maybe the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And uh, the New York Times had a pretty fun set of videos this week on what are known as giga coasters. Um, so if you're like me and you're missing your summer uh, roller coaster fix, I suggest you check it out and get some vicarious thrills. <laughs> Ooh, nice. so you you did? I mean, it's, um, you, you you rode some roller coasters. I'm, I'm chicken shit. I mean, <laughs> this is like I, I'm 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 terrified of roller coasters. I'm, so. I'm not, but I throw up easily. Yeah, so yeah. So uh, yeah, are you a roller coaster fan, Fergus? That's not something I can do. Anyone who lives in China must be a roller coaster. Fan. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't reporters. I wouldn't so. recommend riding Chinese roller coasters. <laughs> <laughs> not in Tianjin, anyway. Uh, David, what do you have for us? Everyone who is concerned about the Xi Jinping becoming uh, lionized, aggrandized, uh, Mao Zedongified, should go to his you know dedicated site, which is uh, well, like we can give the uh, URL uh, link in the pot in the uh, on the site, but it, it's called Xue Xi Jinxing Shi. And xuexi, it's a pun. Yeah, xuexi, yeah, it's xuexi. like a silly pun. So xuexi means to study, right? So but it just so happens yeah. that Xi's surname is Xi. So it's xuexi, study Xi. And then it's jingxing uh, shi, progressive tense. You know, so it's, it's ongoing. Right. And it's a, it's a link to everything she thinks and does and says and visits. And um, it's got his biography. It's got, it's very... Is a word hagiographic or something? Oh, it's not tongue in cheek, though. It's not tongue in cheek. It is totally sincere, and it is very—it's very Maoish to when you look at it. 
But it's also a good source for everything because they update it. It's got everything she ever says or does, and it's a good site. Uh, it's propaganda, but it's kind of interesting to look at. A little bit scary. Mm. Uh, Fergus, what do you have for us? A uh, couple of things. I think um, uh, listeners would uh, uh, enjoy reading Matthew Stinson's article on, on Tianjin and the difference between Tianjin and, and Binhai. Yeah, Matthew's great. He's, a, he's an English teacher who is uh, very active on Facebook, writes great stuff. Uh, he's sort of a moderate Republican who has uh, uh, very reasonable views on a lot of things. Hmm. In spite of that. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, and the other thing um, I'd like to recommend, although I kind of feel like I shouldn't uh, be uh, giving them a free advertisement since they're Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and they probably don't need it, but nonetheless, it's an app called Nuzzle, which is N-U-Z-Z-E-L. Not L-E. Not L-E. Z for you Americans is Z. Yes, sorry. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. For North American uh, listeners, Z. Um, and uh, it solves a, a, a big problem for me, which is I always want to know what people are talking about on Twitter, uh, but I don't want to be on Twitter all the time. Um, so the great thing about Nuzzle is you can go into there and it will aggregate what uh, articles people have been linking to in the past eight hours, 24 hours. So uh, you can so you can catch that's up. Interesting. Yeah, so well, I think that's a great recommendation. Is it yeah. is it available without VPN here? Uh, it is actually. But most of the articles it links to aren't. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, it. It doesn't work a hundred percent completely, but you can you can kind of use it uh, most of the way without a VPN. You know, I, I'm, I'm kicking myself. I, I mean, it's, I'm recording the show on the computer where I had this this uh, recommendation written down, and so I'm going to get the na the ar name of the article wrong. Uh, but it's by Matt Sheehan in the Huffington Post. It's uh, a very recent article uh, called "A Day in the Life of China's Somethingist Dissident." Um, do you guys? Did you guys read oh. this? Oh yeah, uh, cyber dissident. Yeah, cyber yeah, cyber yeah. yeah cyber first cyber, cyber first cyber, cyber dissident. dissident. Yeah. Right. A day in the life of China's first cyber dissident. Uh, he's this Chengdu-based guy who, in as early as like '99 or 2000, got himself in trouble on the internet. Did five years in jail. Came out. Went right back into activism for a couple more years. Went back into prison. So he's on two stints. And since then, has sort of has not given up activism in 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 at, at all. But he takes this incredibly kind of almost quotidian like just really kind of detail-oriented approach uh to uh, it, it, to it's almost like um I'm, uh, he's doing basic problem solving for people uh who have are, are involved in land disputes have had uh their rights violated property rights violated um it's it's not like just mere pettifogging but he's he's uh very well schooled in 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 the art of of activism within the walls within the within the lines he kind of knows where they are and uh it's it's a, a very compelling read uh highly recommend the piece uh i i posted on facebook and, and it's been passed around a bit but uh make sure to, to take a look at it yeah a day in the life of china's first cyber dissident by matt sheehan who i'll say once again is one of my favorite up-and-coming younger journalists working in, in china today guy with terrific chinese skills and uh uh, really kind of good balance to yeah. take on things. Definitely. Yeah. So, uh, hey, thanks, guys. Thanks, Julie, it's great to have you. And, and we'll, we'll do something fun next time. Fergus, we look forward to having you back. Uh, so keep us posted on what you're writing about so we can 
and have you on again. Sure, thanks. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Take care.